You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. Our mission is to bring the hope of Jesus to Jaffrey and beyond. We are here to know Christ, grow in Christ, and serve others. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hopejaffrey.org. And as we are jumping back in kind of to the middle of David's story, I want us to think of it that way, through the idea of a story. What what draws you into a good story? Now, I fully recognize, anytime I use the word story, we often think of fiction and pretend. And we have to recognize that the word of God is the living word of God, the inspired word of God. David was a real historical figure. This was a real historical event. But how is it that those who uh, wrote the word of God put this in, how is it that they organized this story to teach a lesson to us today? And there are many keys to any good story. There is always a plot, right? There's always a good movement. There's always a good introduction. But any good story is followed through one main character. As we trace the life of David, we follow him in this introduction to his life. The rise of David and in many ways the fall of David later on as we'll experience. But the journey of his life, we're, we're following his life. There's this conflict that always happens. There's a crisis that occurs that makes the the story happen, that we're not just here talking about an event, but there's a crisis. There's an issue. There's a problem. There's a Goliath that needs to be taken out. Then that rises into this trials and temptation right before uh, you get to the climax. And then there's a transformation that happens after a climactic event often a rebirth kind of situation, a transformation. Then there's this falling action of any good story and then a final resolution and you close the book and you say, wow, that was a good book. Or you turn the TV off and you say, man, that was a good series, right? Maybe that's some of you as you follow stories. But we meet David, right, in in the field in the beginning. He's selected, he's anointed, but he's, he's short. He's, he's not the strongest, and he doesn't seem to be the one that you would choose to be king. If anything, he was the one forgotten. Oh yeah, I do have another son. He's out in the field, but we, you're not gonna call him. Yeah, no, and Samuel says, no, you get him. Because God doesn't see the outward appearance, he sees the heart. And then he faces this test right after that, this test of Goliath, of Who is going to take out this giant, this snake-like figure that is standing between the two parties of Israel and the enemy? And every hero, as he goes, you know, defeats the giant and moves on and rises to prominence of sorts. But every hero must go through a transformation journey. You can follow almost any heroic story, whether it's a Marvel movie or whether it's a storyline of ancient Beowulf or any ancient epic. You will find a story of this same idea. The hero facing an antagonist, a foil character of sorts, one who stands in opposition, who is like the hero, like the protagonist, but different, is the anti-hero. We have Saul and David as they're pitted against each other constantly through the book of 1 Samuel. Someone who at one point was a mentor to David, but now turns to be an enemy. Our hero is, is now on the run, running for his life. He's had everything stripped away from him. And will our hero survive? We ask ourselves, will our hero rise victorious? Will he face the testing and temptations and the challenges before him? Where will he turn, we wonder? Will he maintain his innocence? Will he ascend to power by his own hand, taking authority on his own strength? 
avoiding God and avoiding uh, others, or will he trust in God's plan and trust in God's timing and follow his way? What kind of hero will this hero be? He faces the Saul, faces battles. He faces his battles with loneliness and being left alone in this cave. He faces doubts. But he constantly comes back to the fact that God is with him every step of the way. He constantly inquires of God. And he must continue to listen to God's word and follow the way of goodness and mercy if he is going to be the man after God's own heart. We've, we know that David's the man after God's own heart. But wh- what does that mean as we see that fleshed out and worked out? And then every good hero comes to that entrance of the cave whatever you might decide that cave looks like in your story. But here we have David literally at times ascending, uh, descending into the cave, into the darkness. And what will he find? And how will the, emerge, the, the hero emerge from that cave? Will he be transformed into something more evil than the evil that he's hunting? Or will he transcend over that and reign victorious over it by conquering evil with good? For that is the heroes that our hearts all search for. So he goes in and he enters that cave. We looked at this a week, uh, a few months ago in the chapter before, in chapter 24. He goes into this cave and what does he find in the cave? There's the dragon in the cave, the Saul. Saul has his back turned. The dragon is in and unaware of David who's entered this cave. What will David do? Will David slay the dragon, destroy the dragon in the storyline here, avoid the timing of God? seek to take victory into his own hands and seek to take control, for he's David, the anointed one after all. What will he do? The dragon's been hunting him, hounding him. Just get it over with already, we say to ourselves. In our hearts, we say, take vengeance. Vengeance is yours, David. Take him out. He doesn't know he's there. It's like the storyline we looked at a few months ago with the Spider-Man versus the Green Goblin. Do you remember that? Spider-Man, the hero of the story, and yet the Green Goblin in his wrath has been destroying him, and Spider-Man has a moment where he can finish the Green Goblin is, and all of us watching, we're like, finish him, right? That's what we yearn for, vengeance within our hearts, and yet he chooses not to. He says, no, it is not for me. And he walks and turns his back. And that's when the Green Goblin attacks him when he has his back turned. And the Spider-Man, of course, jumps. And then the Green Goblin's evil attack comes back upon himself and he destroys his own life. For evil implodes upon evil. That's the role here. That's the storyline. And so David goes into the cave. The dragon is there. He chooses to cut, but not the head of Saul. He chooses instead to cut the corner of the robe. You remember that? Kept the corner of the robe and emerged from that saying, look, I had the chance to kill you, but I chose not to. I could have taken vengeance into my own hands, but I chose not to. It is not for me to kill the Lord's anointed. It is up for God. This is God. I am trusting him to protect me and to take care of you. He was not caught red-handed, but he lives to fight another day, you could say. He moves on, but not with challenges, for there will be more testing along the way. And how will David pass these tests? In some ways, we could say he has two more tests to pass. Chapter 25 and chapter 26 prove to be these moments of testing. Three tests, 24, 25, and 26, which in many ways mirror the tests that Jesus faced in the wilderness. Hey, turn the stone into bread. Hey, jump off the pinnacle of the temple. It's no big deal. Your angels will catch you. 
Hey, just bow down to me and you can have everything. You can skip all the suffering. Just, just bow down to me, Satan says, and you can get everything that you've ever desired and you won't have to go to the cross. Just do it now. David faces in many ways in chapter 24, 25, and 26 similar testing. And will this hero, this anointed Messiah, will this one prove to be the Messiah where our hearts are looking for? Will he be the man after God's own heart? Is this a good enough trailer for the King David show for you? <laughs> I should be saying it in a deeper voice, you know, kind of the voiceover thing, right? But, but isn't it true that this is exactly what happens to us when we, when we face these testing, we, we pass the first test and we step into chapter 25 and it seems on the surface much simpler. In fact, this chapter 25 that we're going to read, you're almost like, why is this a big deal? He should, this should be easy for him, but it's when we get complacent, when we get confident and casual, we are caught off guard by the deception of the enemy, by the snares and traps that Satan sets for David here. And then we seek to internally justify ourselves. We want to justify our own sin. After all, I get to do what I want. Look what I've done. And in many ways, maybe this is what David was thinking. We act out of emotion instead of devotion to God. We allow our emotions to control our life and our actions And we tend to get ourselves in a whole heap of trouble. (laughs) But our God can deliver us from evil evil, and keep us from temptation to act out of our lust and our flesh, saying within our hearts, well, they deserved it, we might say. (laughs) They had it coming. Don't you see, I'm the the victim here. Don't, Don't you see what they did? They had it coming to them. They deserved it. But did they? Aren't we glad the Lord Jesus Christ didn't say that about us? (laughs) And I think in many ways that's going to be what we're talking about today. Do we have the right to take vengeance in our own hands, to take control of our own destiny and demand that God work his out justice in, in, in our timing, not his? But it's not wrong to want justice, and we'll talk about that today as well. Of course, that's a natural thing. But as we see, as we walk through this storyline today, we're going to watch how this comes and plays out. So what we're going to do today is a longer chapter. We're going to read it through, and there's sections, section one, two, three, and we're going to read it right through like a story, and I'm going to preach through each section as we go, okay? So hopefully, many of you maybe have never even heard this story, might be finding this story explored to you, and the ending will be revealed. Of course, some of you might skip to the end and find out what happens. That's okay. But let's begin in verse 1. Chapter 25, verse 1. Samuel died. I promise we're going to go faster than this. But, but Samuel died. This is a very important beginning. I want to implant this in your head because later on, some of you already know what's coming in the couple of chapters later. First Samuel 28, this gets a little weird. Uh, but this is very important. Samuel is dead. Okay? The Mar- Marley was dead to begin with, right? As a doornail. All right, so just remember that. If you're going to be here in the next couple of weeks, just remember, Samuel's dead, okay? For real, I promise. It says in 1 Samuel 25, Samuel died, and all of Israel assembled to mourn for him, and they buried him by his home in Ramah. David then went down to the wilderness of Paran. And we see in verse two, this is kind of the introduction to the story. After Samuel is dead, we're left asking ourselves, well, who's going to take the mantle? Who's going to be this priest? Who's going to be the king? David, and David kind of becomes this priest-king figure, merging the Melchizedek and the Abraham storylines of the past. But we see David merging these two things together. 
And notice, in verse 2, we're going to be introduced to the main characters here. A man in Moen had a business in Carmel. And he was a very rich man with 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats, and was shearing his sheep in Carmel. So we'll pause there. This guy seems pretty important, right? He's rich. He's wealthy. Successful. He's got quite the enterprise going. We don't know his name yet. We just know he's supposed to be very important, very wealthy, very rich. And what we hear about him is not his name or who he is or what his character is. What we hear first is about what he has. It's very important. We don't hear his name yet, but we know that he is important based on what he has and his possessions are what defines him, right? So let's look at verse 3. The man's name was Nabal. And his wife's name, Abigail. The woman was intelligent and beautiful, but the man, a Calebite, was harsh and evil in his dealings. We have kind of an odd couple here. <laughs> we have kind of a, a unique situation. The man sounds apart, important, wealthy, successful, you could say, and yet the descriptions of his character are quite telling. He is harsh, mean, evil, and he is a fool. Nabal, you know what it means? Stupid. (laughs) Kids, we don't use that word, okay? Unless the Bible uses it, and if you can, you can look at verse 25, and Abigail will tell you what his name means. His name means stupid, and stupid is all he does, right? Forrest Gump would tell us, Stupid is as stupid does, right? And that's exactly what Nabal is. He is stupid, and stupid is all he does. All right, this is this extreme foil character of Nabal. And then the complete opposite, what do we have? Abigail. Her name means, my father is joy. Or in some ways, the joy of my father. She is intelligent, she is beautiful, and we will see her become the main character, the main heroine of the story. If it is not for Abigail, we have no idea what would happen to both David and to Nabal. Their entire generation, we could see David become just like Saul in one chapter if it wasn't for the person of Abigail. She is smart, she is intelligent, she is brave and courageous. She is willing to rescue her foolish husband. She is willing to rescue those in her household by brave, quick, smart thinking and and quick action, you could say. And so Abigail and Nabal. And yet David has been hiding from Saul this whole time and he's running around with a merry band of men, four or five, six hundred men there and they're getting very hungry. They need supplies. And so look at this, verse four. Verse four, this is... Kind of this conflict is about to come up. Verse 4, then when David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So David sent young men to instruct them. Go up to Carmel. Come to this Nabal guy. Greet him in my name. Then say this, long life to you. Peace to you. Peace to your family. Peace to all that is yours. I hear that you're shearing the sheep. And when your shepherds were with us, we did not harass them. And nothing of theirs was missing the whole time they were in Carmel. So ask your young men, and they will tell you. So let my young men find favor with you, so that we have come on a feast day, meaning there's plenty. You have more than enough. So please give whatever you have on hand to your servants and to your son David. 
So David's young men went as messengers for David. They went and said all these things to Nabal on David's behalf, and they waited. So, so the situation. They're shearing sheep. They have plenty. This is the harvest time for him. There is more than enough, because you'll find out in a moment, he'll be throwing a feast, a party for all. And so this is a natural time for David to say, hey, I've been protecting your shepherds when they've been in the wilderness. There is not a single person that has stolen anything from them. They have been protected from robbers and from thieves. The sheep that you are shearing right now are, are due to my protection of them. So I'm just asking, would you lend us some food and supplies for our men who did something for you for free? It's a natural request. Even in that culture, it would have been completely normal and not out of bounds. And it would be something, especially in the timing, that the man would have had plenty of. And David was one that everyone would have known, and this would have been a time to honor. And so how do you think Nabal is going to (laughs) respond? Let's look at how the fool responds. Verse 10, Nabal asked them, Who's David? Okay, everybody knew who David was in that area. Everybody knew. People sang songs about him. Saul killed his thousands. David sang his ten, uh, killed his ten thousands. Everybody knew who David was. And yet he acts like he's the one in the entire area who has no idea who this David figure is. Verse 10, who's David? Who is Jesse's son? Again, they didn't say anything about Jesse. He does, though. He even knows who his father is. And he says, oh, oh, many slaves these days are running away from their masters. Am I supposed to take my bread, my water, and my meat that I butchered from my sh- who do you Who do you think he is the most important person to Nabal, right? You know? Who is the central figure of Nabal's life, right? It's Nabal. It's all his. It's all about him. He's done everything. My bread, my water, my meat, I butchered my shears. You think I'm going to give my stuff and give them to these men? I don't even know who they are. You got no idea. The young men then retraced their steps when they returned to him. And they reported these words to David. So how do you think David's going to respond? Oh boy. He said to his men, all of you put on your swords. So each man put on his sword, and David also put on his sword. And about 400 men followed David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. Oh boy. Okay, Nabal is in trouble. We have a situation on our hands. Uh, David is not too thrilled with what just took place, and he strapped on his sword. Everybody, Get your guns, okay? And we're going to ride our little posse into town, and we're going to take care of business, okay? David is a warrior. He has fought in battles. He has been hunting this kind of, living this guerrilla, guerrilla warfare style as he's in and out and on the run. He is well accustomed to taking care of some fool who's in the middle of slaughtering sheep. And he's probably thinking, just like here, shearing these sheep, not slaughtering them, although they would for the feast that they're about to take place in. Just like that, I'm going to slaughter Nabal and his entire family. So Nabal's offensive reply is, is ridiculous. He belittles David, disrespects David, calls him a runaway slave. This is the anointed uh, man of God. Many people are fully aware of that at that time. They know that he is the one destined to take the throne. This is the future king of Israel standing before you, and you're like, I don't even know who this guy is. He's nothing to me. Arrogance, my bread, my water, meat, and shears. He dishonors the Lord's anointed one. In complete opposite to the way David's been treating the Lord's anointed one, the previous one, and Saul, of honoring and respecting, even though he's been hunting his own life. 
And what does it say? He was a fool. This fool. David's response, we could say, is also foolish. But I first want us to think of Nabal. What is a fool in some ways? He'll be called a fool many other times. He'll be called stupid. He'll be called... Yet we often think of a fool in today's world, maybe somebody who's just kind of silly or comical or not serious. The Word of God says a fool, Psalm 41.1, a fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Someone who says within himself, I have no higher power, I am the power. A fool says in his heart, there is no God because I am king and I am God. And ultimately, when we displace God from our lives, we view ourselves as king. We view ourselves as in control. Nabal viewed him as king of his little own world. Proverbs 18.6, then a fool is going to talk, right? Because Proverbs 18.6, a fool's lips lead to strife, but his mouth provokes a beating. And I'll tell you, that's exactly what he did. (laughs) His words provoked a beating. We would say within our hearts of hearts, a just beating. This guy deserves it. In many ways, some of you are reading it thinking, I hope this guy gets his due, right? I hope he gets, David goes over there and way, you know, puts a licking on the guy, right? That's our heart. That's what we're saying within us. But is that what should happen? Proverbs 18, 7 says, a fool's mouth is devastation and his lips are a trap for his life. I'm not going to ask to name names or maybe if you've ever been in that same situation, but where you said something so stupid, your mouth got you into the trouble that you're in, right? The book of James, read that sometimes. A man can't bridle his mouth, can't bridle his tongue, right? All the different pictures of what it is, of how important the gateway for our heart, the mouth is, right? It, it, it totally reflects who we are. So David's response, yeah, how we'd all respond. David's a real man, right? Yeah, he's going to take out this guy. Nobody disrespects me, is what David says. All of you, put on your swords. Avengers assemble, basically, right? Let's go, right? That's what we're thinking. Get your gun. Let's ride. Cowboy posse, gang headed your way. We're going to beat your face in, kid, right? That's what we say. That's what we think. Don't act like you weren't thinking that, okay? And so our response is the same. Get him, right? Highlights our desire and our inward desire to to finish people off and act as if we're always better than someone else. They deserve it more than we, is it not? You don't know what they did. You don't know what they said, right? Because that's what Jesus said, right? An eye for an eye, right? (laughs) Right? Isn't that what he said? The whole point was, no, not an eye for an eye, right? Not a, you hit me, I hit you harder. You punch me, I punch you back. You insult me, I insult you. This is not the world that the people of God are supposed to be living in. And yet today in cancel culture, in our world of online social media, someone offends me or says something I don't like, you watch how I'm going to change their life in the Facebook comment section, right? (laughs) Because that's where the world has changed. (laughs) Yeah, right. Matthew 5, 38, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That's where we stop reading, right? Rather, we find this in sports. I was watching sports the other day. Shocker, right? And uh, there was an NBA game, highlights on ESPN. Five guys ejected from the game because somebody went up to somebody in the sides and they had a beef and they started throwing punches. Then everybody, you know when, when someone starts throwing punches, what happens, right? Does everybody on the benches just stand by and like, oh, that's great. No, all the benches clear. Now all of a sudden there's 20, 30 guys all tackling each other, throwing punches because somebody was disrespected, right? 
because nobody dares disrespect me. We can think of our countries, our war, our situation, the escalation that can happen. You attack me, I attack you, right? Social media, classic. We see how many nayballs are out there, even the nayball that's within our own heart that goes on social media pretty frequently. I'm guilty there many times. Don't read the comment section, many people would say. But yet within us, this is coming from a natural response for justice. But there are things in life that are unfair. They're not. In fact, many of you have experienced incredibly evil, unfair things that you've had to go through. And naturally, we desire to get justice on our own timing and our own way. And if the end justifies the means, right, then who cares? <laughs> As long as the end is the result I want, however we get there, what does it matter? That's how our culture lives. That's how the world lives. And yet, is that the way David is supposed to live? Is that the way that God's Messiah, the anointed one, is supposed to live? And is that the way the church and God's people are supposed to operate? Walking in the same way the world would respond and walk. But there is no difference between us. We are pragmatic people. The end justifies the means. And yet Jesus said, love your enemies. Well, that's for, you know, those people, right? But, but you don't know my situation, right? Bless those who persecute you. Well, bless those who revile you and insult you. For you will be blessed. You will face these things in life. It is our response to these things that makes all the difference. And so we find in, within us here in verse 14, it goes on. And we'll read through some of these sections much quicker. But look at verse 14. It says, one of Nabal's young men informed Abigail. This guy is unnamed, and yet I'd love to meet this guy. He had the courage and the bravery to say something and to do something about it. He didn't just follow the crowd and sit in the background and let what happens, what happens. No, he says something. He steps up and says, this is wrong. And he says something. Verse 14, one of Nabal's young men informed Abigail, Nabal's wife, look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, but, you know, Nabal, he screamed at them. <laughs> and the men treated us very well when they were in the field. We weren't harassed by David's men, and nothing of ours was missing the whole time we were living with them. And there was a wall around us both day and night the entire time we were with them herding the sheep. Now consider carefully what you should do because there is a certain trouble for our master headed this way and his entire family. He is such a worthless fool, nobody can talk to him. We know exactly what that's like. A worthless fool that nobody can talk with him most of the time because when you're talking to a worthless fool, you can't get a word in, right? They're more interested in sharing their opinions and their thoughts about everything. They don't have time to listen to you. That's Nabal. Verse 18, Abigail hurried, taking 200 loaves of bread, two clay jars of wine, five butchered sheep, a bushel of roasted grain, 100 clustered of raisins, and 200 cakes and pressed figs and loaded them on donkeys. She's gathering the food and the supplies. She's acting quickly. She's taking matters here, and she's trying to seek to do what she can. The climax is, is coming. The rising action is building. We see the situation and the crisis in front of us. There's 19. She said to her male servants, go ahead of me. I'll be right behind you. And she did not tell her husband Nabal obviously. Verse 20, as, as she rode the donkey down the mountain pass toward a uh, hidden from view, she saw David and his men coming towards her and met them. 
there's this herd of guys. Maybe I just imagine them for some reason, right? They're all riding, riding horses, and they all have their six shooters out, right? And they're shooting in the air. That's how I imagine it. Of course, I know that wasn't the way it happened. But they're riding, and there's a dust cloud. She's on this dinky little donkey, dee 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 dee, dee with some food and some wagons, and they're headed, and they're about to meet. And the epic scene pans, right? The camera's angles, and it's this, what's going to happen? And then, phew, it goes to commercials, right? Okay, so David, verse 21, David had just said, David is literally saying to himself, I guarded everything that belonged to this man in the wilderness for nothing, verse 21. He was not missing anything, yet he paid me back evil for good. May God punish me and do so severely if I let any of his males survive until the morning. He is angry, okay? He is mad. He is committed. I am going to slaughter this guy and all of his servants, okay, for what he said to me. Don't act like you've never been there. All right, verse 23. This is this aspect, right, where in some ways this is an incredible, this informant alerts Abigail. There's an understatement here. This worthless fool, nobody can talk to him. Then there's plan and there's a present that is given. Abigail takes action. She knows the, <laughs> she knows the quickest way. Uh, to a man's heart is through his stomach, right? So she brings food and offers that, right? She's bringing the food and she's on this situation where she herself could die. She herself could die for this. So section three is the climax of the whole story. The two parties are meeting. Verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey. She knelt down with her face to the ground and paid homage to David. She knelt at his feet and said, the guilt is mine, my Lord, but please let your servant speak to you directly. Listen to the words of your servant. I'm just a humble servant. Please listen to me before you do this thing. Just listen to what I have to say quickly, right? And so this is the key pivotal moment. What is it that she's going to say that's going to take King David, get his anger to dissipate and get him not to commit this wrong act of wrongdoing? Verse 25, my Lord should pay no attention to this worthless fool Nabal. For he lives up to his name. His name means stupid, and stupidity is all he knows, right? Stupid is as stupid does. That's, the, that's where it was quoted first, right? I, your servant, didn't see my Lord's young men whom you sent. I, I wasn't there when they talked to you, the Nabal. I wasn't there. If I had been, it would have been different, she says. Verse 26, now my Lord, as surely as the Lord lives and as yourself live, it is the Lord who kept you from participating in bloodshed and avenging yourself by your own hand. May your enemies and those who intend to harm you, the Lord, be like Nabal. She, she gives testimony. Hey, the Lord's hand is over your life. He's kept you from committing bloodshed and wrongdoing in the past. I believe he's doing it again in your life. It is the Lord who kept you, she says. Verse 27. Let this gift your servant has brought to my Lord, given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive your servant's offense, for the Lord, or Yahweh, is certain to make a lasting dynasty for my Lord. Think about your future, because he fights the Lord's battles. Throughout your life, may evil not be found in you. She goes on. Someone is pursuing you and intends to take your life. He's like, that's an understatement. Saul's been chasing me for years. My Lord's life is tucked safely in the place where the Lord your God protects the living. People are intending to kill you all the time, but God's in control of your life. He protects you, right, she's saying. He is the one that holds your life. Don't try to take your own life into your own hands. But he is flinging away your enemies like stones from a sling. Why is it that you need to care about Nabal in this situation? 
Then the Lord does for my Lord all the good he has promised you and appoints you over the ruler of Israel. There will be no remorse or troubled conscience for my Lord because of needless bloodshed. Do you hear that? Needless bloodshed or my Lord's revenge. Do you see that? Verse 31. And when the Lord does good things for my Lord, may you remember me, your servant. That's Abigail's speech. The climax of the whole story is coming. How will David respond? But that story, for sure, what she says, what she gives testimony to, Abigail's bravery, she serves as this mediator in between these two parties. She speaks directly to him. Don't do something stupid because of someone else's stupidity. Isn't that almost a simple statement? And yet so applicable. I don't need to work hard to apply that to your life, do I not? Don't do something evil because of someone else's evil. Don't shed blood needlessly is what she's pleading with him. Abigail's statement is powerful and her speech is powerful. And then we go into verse 32. How does David respond? David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you to meet me today. May your discernment be blessed and may you be blessed. Today, you Abigail, kept me from participating in bloodshed. Wow. Wow. Today you kept me, the king, from participating in bloodshed and avenging myself by my own hand, not God's hand, my hand, he says. Verse 34, otherwise, as surely as the Lord God of Israel lives, who prevented me from harming you? If you had not come quickly to meet me, Nabal wouldn't have any males left by the morning light. And David accepted what she had brought him and said, go home in peace. David's response here is what, who David is. We act emotionally. We act impulsively. But when David is presented with the truth, he responds. You see this later on in his life. You know the story. Nathan, Nathan comes to him and says, you are the man. You slept with her. You killed her husband. You have committed a murder and adultery. And what does David say? Does he just deny it? No, it wasn't me. It was somebody. No, he admits his problem. And he turns from his way. He admits his heart and his sin. And he seeks, create in me a clean heart, O Lord, he says in Psalm. And so it is his response that is the difference. It is his desire to repent from the way that he was headed and go in literally the opposite direction. Repentance is 180 turn. He turns directly in the opposite direction and goes. And thereby, thereby is saved from doing grave harm and committing grave evil as God's anointed one. Look at section five here. This is the resolution. The rising action, the climax, then the falling action has just happened where we see David dissipate. Okay, whew. All right, that epic battle scene that you were hoping to see, not happening, okay? But what is it that we see next? Verse 36, how will this be resolved? Because an injustice and wrong has still happened, right? Like we, we often just say, well, you know, just love your enemies, you know, always turn the other cheek and just, you know, hope nothing goes wrong. The fact of the matter is there, not that God doesn't want justice. The fact of the matter is not that God will not punish evildoers. The fact of the matter is that God will do those things. So it is not always up to you to make that difference. It is not always up to you to right that wrong. And yet there are many times, yes, this is not a message on justice where we are called to stand for what is right in our culture, constantly saying that this is right and this is wrong. That is not what I'm saying here. But we know these times of emotion that comes into our lives where we want to put ourselves in God's 
place. We want to be God's hand. We don't want to trust God's hand. And so watch this, because God is going to take care of the situation. God will be the ultimate judge. Look at it. Uh, verse 36, and, and, and Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was in the house, holding a feast fit for a king. Why? Because Nabal thought he was a king, right? He, Nabal is Nabal. Nabal is all about Nabal, man. Nabal's heart was cheerful, and he was very drunk. Classic, right? So she didn't say anything to him until the morning light, because you don't come to the drunk guy who thinks he's at his own feast because he's a king. You don't talk to him. You don't talk sense into him. You wait. Why? Because verse 37, in the morning, when Nabal sobered up, his wife told him about these events and all that had just taken place, and his heart died, and he became a stone. I tried to figure out what that meant. And most commentators would say he had a stroke. <laughs> he, he had a heart attack, and he went into a coma. Because look what happened. Verse 38, about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal dead. The Lord took care of the situation. The Lord's hand was over the situation. Justice would be served for a fool who caused grave evil and harm to come upon people and many others, no doubt. And in his stone-cold drunkness, he never left that state and his heart became stone. His heart died. While at the same time, David's heart was enlivened. David's heart, a man after God's heart, is the one who lives. This is a stark picture. Ten days later, he stops breathing because the Lord has struck him dead. It is with striking simplicity that the author writes this, is it not? It's not this elaborate thing. It is one of the shortest verses in the whole chapter. It literally just says, <laughs> the Lord struck him dead. It's just like, simple. It was easy, Right? And so we think of this situation where then later on it says in verse 39, David heard that Nabal was dead. He said, blessed be the Lord who championed my cause against Nabal's insults and restrained his servant from doing evil. The Lord brought Nabal's evil's deeds back on his own head. Then David sent messengers to speak to Abigail about marrying him. This is a situation where we see this. David hears of Nabal's death. And I think of this concept that he says in verse 39. He restrained his servant from doing evil. And we can think about in your own life, as I kind of bring this to a close, as we, as we think about our own lives, when is it that God has restrained you from doing evil? We often praise him for the path he sets before us. The, the encouragement that and the power of his Holy Spirit to lead us to do great things for God. We often view that and yet we, we fail to consider God's providence in your life. These are things that often float under the surface. These situations where we consider ourselves for a moment, how is it that God has restrained me from doing grave evil? How is it that he has held me back in many ways? How is it that he has been something to me of a roadblock? How is it that he has been somewhat of a wall to me to protect me from the evil that I know my heart is capable of? Maybe we think of our situations. I consider how we've grown up and your parents or your lifestyle. Sometimes we might be thinking those things are holding me back. And yet, how is it that God has used people in your life, Abigail's in your life, to restrain you from doing grave evil and ruin your testimony and reputation? How is that Maybe he's doing that right now for us. 
when we hear a no to our prayers, we might be thinking to ourselves, maybe that's something God is doing, putting in our lives, saying, slow down, don't need you there. And so we think of these areas where evil will eventually return evil back upon itself, that is the way of evil. And yet pragmatism, as we talked about earlier, is desiring for all of us to go after the end, accomplish the end in any means possible. Lie and manipulate your way to advance your career. Well, so then you can, um, you can provide for others. It's a good thing to get more. And yet the way you do it means nothing. You know, lie to that homeowner on that job because, you know, they're wealthy and they're a jerk anyways. They deserve it and have it coming to them. And by the way, I, you know, I'll allow me to be able to be free to do what I need with that money that I, the phrase, they had it coming to them, you know, is, is true in part, for we all do. Apart from Christ, if our foolishness and if we head down the path of destruction, one day God's righteous hand of judgment will be just, swift, total, and complete. Apart from Christ and his love, we all have it coming for us. Who puts us in the seat of being the judge is the question. It's not always for us to say. The Bible actually says, judge not, lest we also be judged. And so our applications as we think through are many from this passage. One aspect I want to consider before I consider some aspects of Jesus and what he has done for us is this concept of meekness. Probably a word not used very often. It is not that David was weak or David was not uh, standing for what is right and justice. And it was not that David was not a strong man, you could say. In fact, in many respects, he was the warrior that so many of us desire to be. Maybe speaking as a man inwardly, we desire to be like that David figure. And yet his strength was not shown in his swiftness and in his emotion and his reaction to anyone who insulted him. His strength was shown in restraint. His strength is shown in his meekness, in his ability to do grave danger and to be gravely um, powerful and strong. It is in his ability to control that. Man, it is not in your ability to be stronger than the other person that makes you a man, you could say. It's not in your ability to be the angry one. Well, don't take him off because you'll never know what he'll do. That doesn't make a man strong. That makes a man weak. For you are unable to control your heart. It's one who is able to control that. That the word would say he is meek. It is one who this aspect of retaliation is not in your vocabulary. But you are meek. Strong you might be. But able to hold a small child in your arms. Lovingly help and provide those who are in need. To act justly as Micah 6 would say. Vengeance is mine says the Lord. We conquer evil with good, Romans 12 says. Let us not forsake God's providential and sovereign protection over us and his people. And again, as we said earlier, what Abigail's maybe has God put in your life to keep you from this path of doing something more evil? The roadblocks he puts into us and we can praise God for saying, Lord, thank you for doing this. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for rescuing me. And you can think to me, with me, about the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer, I think, speaks 
wonderfully. In a moment before we take of communion, we're going to recite the Lord's Prayer to us, for there are, in many ways, this concept right at the end, the ones that I never really dwell on very much. I always love the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. Father, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, right? But then it says, forgive us our trespasses. Well, I can get, I can get around with that, right? What's the next line? Forgive those who have trespassed against us. Okay, now we're getting a little more real here, right? And then what does it say? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Do we consider and think how many times the Lord has protected us, saved us from ourselves, saved us from the Nabal that is within all of our hearts? Well, Nabal's that guy over there. Nabal is right here. I am that fool. I am that fool who mocked the Lord and insulted him, and yet he did not respond like David. He gave me mercy and grace. Matthew 5 speaks of how this begins within our heart. It speaks about in Luke 22 of how the the hatred that occurred upon Jesus and his life in the garden. He prayed to save us, to rescue us, And Judas comes over and gives him a kiss and betrays him. And then what is it in the garden that they do? We we take Jesus and we're taking them. And then what what does he do? Someone takes out a sword, slices off the ear, right? You know that. What does Jesus say? Yeah, go get him, right? Get him, everybody. No, no, no. He says he takes the ear and he heals the man and says it's not for now. Jesus was mocked and beaten He was spit upon. He was wrongly accused. And yet, what is it that Jesus says after all of this? Luke chapter 23. After he's been beaten, whipped, wrongly accused, mocked, as for Peter himself has denied him. Verse 20, 34. Chapter 23, Luke 23, two other criminals were also led away to be executed with him. And when they arrived at the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the other criminals, one on the right, one on the left. And what did Jesus say? Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots later on. The soldiers are mocking him. They came to offer him sour wine. They put this king of the Jews over him. And then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him from the very cross. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. And the others answered, rebuking him, don't you even fear God since you are undergoing the same punishment? We're punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve and the things we did. This man has not done anything wrong. Verse 42, and then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus has come to be our Savior and our King. The question is, is he your Savior and is he your King? Because if he is, we are willing to forsake the Nabal within all of us, to forsake the Saul who seeks to go about his own kingdom, to forsake the, the David that is impulsive and quick and emotional, offended, seeking revenge. And to in so many ways be like the Abigail in this situation. To look to the Abigail, to look to the the Jesus figure who is the mediator between these two parties. The one who needs to make a way to break down the dividing wall and to make peace for us to come 
to Jesus. Lord, we pray to him, stay away from temptation. Help deliver me from evil. Keep me far from this, Lord. Right? These are, this is our heart in the Lord's prayer because it is his kingdom, not ours. Let me pray before we come before the table. Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for all that you have done for us. May you be glorified and honored today in all that we partake of. In Jesus' name, amen.